episode four. In this episode, we speak with Sifu Kenny Perez, an eighth one black belt in Wushu under Coach Wu Bin. We talk about training with the Beijing Wushu team, his roommate action movie star Donnie Yen, and how our reasons for training changes as we get older. And because I spoke Chinese, before I got there, I learned some Chinese in the books because I knew I was going, so I had some, some basic dialect down. I think that kind of opened the door a little bit better for me because I didn't go in there just speaking English and like, hey, I want you to learn. Can you translate for this? Tell these guys what I want. It was like, hey, ni hao, what's your Kenny Perez? Well, I may go, wushu, ni kai jawa. You know, and they're like, well, this guy, he's kind of like trying to learn, really. Let's, you know, let's treat him a little bit. And they kind of really were nice to me because of that. Welcome to the Martial Arts Junkies Podcast. All martial arts, all the time. This is where we talk with martial arts instructors, students, and competitors about teaching, training, competing, history, philosophy, and anything to do with martial arts. Now your hosts, Jerry Lorita and James Marler. Sifu Kenny Perez, how are you doing today, sir? Hey, I'm good. Good to be here. Thank you. I appreciate you taking some time and coming on the podcast. Um, so for our listeners, can you tell them you know, where you're from, when you started learning martial arts, how old you were, what style, that type of thing? Yeah, for sure. Um, Kenny Perez, my name. I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. I pretty much grew up most of my life here. Um, I've been in martial arts since I was nine years old, and uh, I started with judo at the local Y, then I moved to karate and uh, different styles of karate for so many years. Uh, I started in... Um, Kempo Karate, took some Okinawan Shorei, and that took about 10 to 12 years worth of time over the years. And then I also started taking Kung Fu, started with Sifu, Steve started with Sifu Fong. Can you still hear me? Yes. Okay, I started with Sifu Fong and um, Wing Chun, and then I moved over to uh, Five Animals under Douglas Wong. And uh, from there, he introduced me to uh, some people doing a sport called Wushu, and I really got involved in Wushu for many years. And from there, I started teaching people wushu and competing and getting around, you know, going around to places and performing, whatever I could do with wushu. Took me to China, got to work in some movies. Um, you know, did a few things with it. And uh, I now I teach here in Arizona. Uh, I teach at my studio, and I also teach at the local college. And I'm um, prom promoting, right now I'm more or less focusing on Tai Chi and Qigong, but I still have Kung Fu wushu students, and I enjoy doing it, and I've been doing it for like over... 50 years. Okay. So you started off with judo and karate, correct? And kempo? That is correct, yes. Okay. And then you went with si uh, Sifu Augustine Fong to learn Wing Chun. How long were you with him? You know, I'm kind of still with him, but, you know, we really kind of like for about a year and a half to two years of, of concentrated training before I was introduced into the, the uh, five animal style with Douglas Wong. And I don't know if it was just, you know, a change of style, flavor, whatever, but. You know, at that time, I, it seemed a little bit more challenging and interesting. So I kind of moved back and forth. But I still see, I got to go to a reunion at Sifu Fong's studio this April. So we still stay connected, you know. Now, how did you meet uh, Sifu Douglas Wong? You know, when I was like in high school, I guess, my, my friends broke out these magazines that I never saw before. They're called Kung Fu, Inside Kung Fu. And so I looked at them. I was, I was already taking martial arts. And I said, whoa, well, this magazine is awesome. And, and we didn't have it in Arizona yet. And the whole magazine showed like 
bits and articles and interviews of different people, and Douglas Wong was one of them. And so I was like, I, w I would love to train with that guy when I saw the, the article. And then, you know, uh, I had some family that lived in the L.A. area, and we used to go there during the summers. So I got to go there, and, you know, I spent probably about you know, my whole summer there. And then um, I told my mother if I could, I could go to the school and meet these people at the school. And I, I was there to train, too, because I was already in martial arts, so I wanted to go train with somebody anyways, and I knew there was a lot of good schools out there. I'd called a few different schools, and then I ended up calling him, too, of course. And he seemed the most inviting, most uh, down-to-earth, and most uh, approachable instructor. And he said, come on down. Let's see what you got. I'll be glad to work with you. So I went to school and um, it started from there. Uh, he introduced me to five animals and uh, a lot of other varieties of skills and styles. And from there, that's, that's how I met him. And it's kind of a chain of events. You know, he introduced me to some people that were doing wushu. They took me to China. And in China, I was with another group of Americans. And one of them was Donnie Yen. And so me and Donnie hung out. And then... We got to make movies together, another little connection or a chain, link on the chain, you know. So everything led to another thing, but it was all great, all good. Okay. Now, what was your favorite part of training with uh, Sifu Douglas Wong? Uh, his openness. His openness. He made everything seem so easy, so so in, not mysterious, not mystical, and not ungraspable. You know, he, he kind of broke everything down in a really americanized way i guess you could say americanized but i mean it, it took away a lot of the fluff and just and show you what it was about and he knew what he was talking about he has great teachers he's trained with a lot of great teachers in the, in the la area and uh you know some great guys from way back you know like even, Wa even wally J and those guys you know he's always around those kind of people so he had insight to a variety of styles and uh he just kind of was really really just just like the guy next door just real really easy going and such so i i thought that was great his openness to teach me and there was no shroud of mystery or, you know, spend 20 years to learn the secret of Kung Fu from him. You know, it's just, here's, it's what, this is what it is. It's just practice and this is what you do, you know. Yeah, I remember his books. And when I look at his, the pictures on his books, he seemed, you know, kind of menacing. But then you told me he's like, just like a California guy, just very relaxed. Yeah, yeah he is. Yeah, exactly. You look at him, you think, oh, man, yeah, you know, it's like, my gosh, it's Master Douglas Wong. And then he's like, hey, yeah, what's happening? Ain't hey, no big thing. I can show you what you want to learn. You know, it's real cool. You know, he's just. He talks like any other guy in the street, down the street. You know, he's really, really just an American, all-American, you know? Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. What was your fondest memory when you were training with him? Gosh, just the, the, the personal attention he gives you, you know? I mean, you know, school was awesome. Just all the cool kung fu weaponry and, you know, just it's like one of those schools you see in the movies and such. And that was really cool. But just his attention, you know, that he gives you and he makes you feel really really special you know while he's teaching you and uh he could be tough but you know he's really like i said casual going but uh, i think uh his his specialty was like a lot of weaponry so i thought that was fun you know i always loved to learn weapons i still love learning weapons and i have so many weapons in my collection you know my wife's gonna divorce me but you know it's a part of the thing i've been doing over the years and so i do make a little bit of change from it every now and then so it's a good thing nice so then after you were training with him then um he introduced you to wushu correct Yes, as a matter of fact, yeah, you know, we were in the circuit, a lot of tournaments going on here and there, and, uh, you know, um, I'd go to the tournaments a lot in L.A. and, and compete, and uh, he said, hey, there's this guy that goes to tournaments out here, you got to meet him, and his name is uh, Roger Tung, and he was one of the pioneers, you know, a lot of people don't even know who he is nowadays, but he was one of the pioneers who first started using and incorporating wushu in the competitions, and, uh, you know, it was back in the day when, uh, before wushu, blew up like it is, and, and most of the people back then were kind of traditionalists too, you know, they, they did forms, but they also knew how to fight, and they knew the background, and 
they had a great a great foundation. They weren't paper tigers, but um, his you know he was he would go to the tournaments and then you know I just one day I happened to be at the same tournament and my teacher Sifu Doug Wong said hey this is the guy I wanted you to meet, so I got to in introduced to Roger Tong and uh, Anthony Chan. And Roger said, yeah, I'm getting ready to do a workshop down at this school in L.A. if you want to come check it out. And I said, I'll be there. And then, you know, like a month later I was there. And then he said, hey, I'm going to take a group to China if you'd like to go. We're going to be training with people in China. And at that time, at the same time, I had seen the Beijing team tour the U.S. And they were, like, awesome. And I was blown away. And I was like, I'm all for it. And they said, if you ever come to China, you'll be, you know, we'll be glad to teach you. That was what the, the coach said. And I was like, well, if, if I figure out a way to get there. And then the guy, Roger, you know, offered me a to trip to China with some other people. And there was like 10 of us, and all pioneers, I guess you could say. Chris, Christopher Pei, who teaches in uh, Arlington, Virginia, and uh, Bosun Mark, who's in Boston area. Of course, her son was with us, Donnie Yen. Another guy, Keith Hirobayashi, goes by the name of Keith Cook, yep. who's a name named for himself, and he was in like Mortal Kombat, and he used to fight in the tournaments on the West Coast and such. Roger Tong, Anthony Chan, you know, there's a few other people there, but yeah, it was fun. It was the first group of Americans invited to compete and uh, to train in China, and okay. so we got to do that. And what and year was that? 1980. 1980. The team came like in the, the early part of '80, and then I was there like in October. Like knock knock, I'm here. Hello, remember you invited me? <laughs> they were like surprised to see me, but it was fun. We originally went to train as a group in a, the city of Nanjing in Jiangsu, China. And that was an experience in itself, getting off the plane in that era, 1980, early 1980, you know. And then from there, we spent, I guess, three months in one city. And at that time, me and Donnie were trying to get to Beijing to train with the Beijing team. And finally, we got a letter in the mail. We were, like, training in, in the other city, Nanjing. And the letter came. We were like, whoa, look. And it was from Coach Wu Bin. You have been accepted to train. You know, come on down and you can come. So, you know, at the end of December, we jumped on a train, and we were in going to Beijing to train with the Beijing team. And that was a big event, the start of something big. And, you know, it was always great. Always always great times. Everything we did was fun. Now, was now how old were you when you went to China? 18. 18? I just, I just graduated high school, and I started going to a place called DeVry Electronics. And, yep. you know, I, I was, like, in my first semester or something, and then and then this got invited to go to China, and I was like, hmm, well, I still got some student loan money. Let me just uh, borrow that money again. <laughs> I left uh, electronic school and went to China with it. You know? Nice. And how old was Donnie Yen at the time? He's about, I think he's about, he's about three, three years, I mean, three months younger than me. We're about the same age, you know? Same age then, so okay. We were both 18. Yeah. All right, so you get to China, and what was the first city you were in again? Uh, Nanjing. Nanjing, and then you get a letter from Coach Wu Bin, who is a very famous uh, wushu instructor, where you can go train in Beijing. Is that it? That's what it was, yeah. All right. Yeah. So you made the trip out there, and what was that training like? Well, because 1980, I mean, that was, I mean, China just basically opened their doors at that time, correct? Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the whole structure was totally different from the way we train here. I mean, you go to a gym, and I mean, most people would go to a gym. And when I was a young guy, we'd go to a gym and have an hour class and maybe stay an extra hour or something, train maybe twice a week or whatever. And, you know, that was in the evening. And, and then China, we were introduced to this eight-hour training regime. You know, we'd get there at 8, train till 12, rest in the afternoon, be back at, you know, after dinner, like 6.30 till like 10 or whatever, you know. And then the, I would stay in the afternoon and train with the young guys, too. Matter of fact, 
Master Li Jinhong is a good friend of mine, and he was part of the Beijing team back there before he moved to the United States in Phoenix. And uh, he used to train the kids. So in the afternoon, I'd be under him. I'd be training with, you know, these little kids, and I'm a big guy. And, but I'd be getting that extra three hours of training from two to five. So I was doing at least 10 hours a day. But that's how it was there, you know. And uh, the athletes, professional athletes would train 10 hours a day. I mean, not, I'm sorry, eight hours a day. And then that's morning and, and evening. And, uh, you know, they get paid to do it. But y y they get up, they expect you to be already warmed up by running around the gym or doing your running before you get to class. You get to class, you know, by 7.30 and stretch because class starts at 8. So you have to be warmed up and stretched out by 8 o'clock. Then the coach will come in and say, all right, this is what we're working on today. And for the next three hours or so, you'd, you'd train hard, you know, a lot, of, a lot of basics, a lot of drills, a lot of calisthenics at the end of class. And then, um, you know, you'd be so sore you could barely walk out of the gym. They usually would go to lunch or whatever, and sometimes you could take a shower. Because back then they didn't have hot water, you know. You, I think twice a week, special days, they'd have the hot water up. But you just got to take your cold shower or whatever, bird bath if you have to. But go to lunch. Well, you pooped out, you know, and then come back for the next round. And I loved it. I loved it because, you know, I knew I was going to get back on that plane and come back to the U.S. And it was going to be like, wow, that was weird. Was I dreaming? So I wanted to get as much time in as I could with all the people I could. And Coach Wu was great about that. I remember when I first got there, he introduced me to the team. And he's like, hey, this is our, our guy from the United States, Kenny Perez. And he's going to be here with you guys for a while. And he's like, anything he wants to learn, you guys teach him. And I was like, what? Because everyone was a specialist in different things, you know, each athlete and the, the teachers and coaches. And I was like, wow, he's just like a kid in a candy store. I, I'm going to be having a good time while I'm here. So I, I kind of was at a time when it wasn't too commercialized for foreigners. We could just go in there, and they're happy to see a foreigner training, and they teach you, you know. And they were really open to me. And Coach Wu set it up like that. And he helped me hook up with a lot of great teachers, too, and masters now that in the 80s that aren't even alive anymore that were back then t training the team. And I think it was a great experience. But now, did yeah, they do they hard. treat you differently? I mean, you know, do they look at you the same, or are they like, oh, well, he's still kind of just like a beginner kind of a thing? Mm -hmm. You know, I was already had some skills, and I thought I knew kung fu, so I, I thought I was okay. But I'm sure they were probably like, oh, you know, he's he's a foreigner. He's, but I think they really treated me nicely, the because I was there, and and then like I said, they saw me in the U.S. Followed him. I followed him to like five cities, and like. I was with them for a lot of shows, so they knew me. I was like a groupie. So they were, you know, kind of nice to me already. And then for them, it was like a, a, a foreign guy that spoke English, and, and the way they wanted to learn my English from me, and, and I'd learned Chinese from them. So we kind of hit it off like that, too. And because I spoke Chinese, before I got there, I, I learned some Chinese in the books because I knew I was going. So I had some, some basic dialect down. I think that kind of opened the door a little bit better for me. Because I didn't go in there just speaking English and like, hey, I want you to learn. Can you translate for this? Tell these guys what I want. It was like, hey, ni hao, what's your Kenny Perez? Well, I may go, wash on the wushu, ni kai jawa. You know, and they're like, well, this guy, he's kind of like trying to learn. Really, let's, you know, let's treat him a little bit. They kind of really were nice to me because of that. I don't know. I'm impressed. That sounded pretty legit right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It worked. You know, I mean, I wasn't trying to get any special treatment, but it, it really helped open the doors a little bit more. And they treated me really nice, you know. You know stern training. You know, but the athletes liked me. The coaches were pretty cool to me, you know, and Donnie. You know. Yeah. Now, in the, uh, you told me in the evenings you guys, uh, Coach Wu Bin would bring in other specialty coaches. What is that about? Yeah, because, um, like, at nighttime they do their specialty training. At daytime they do their basics and endurance and all that good stuff. And at nighttime 
you know, they'd have like the masters, the local masters that were in Beijing or whatever, come in and teach them like a Xing Yi style or Pakwa style. Or, there's a barrage of styles, Bachi, Three Stars, you know, um, all kinds of really unique styles in Beijing City. And so they'd come and train the athletes, and of course we were there, so we got to learn along, right along with them. And that was, that was great, great stuff, great training. And, you know, they, some of these athletes or these masters were, you know, 50, 60 years old back in the 80s. So they kind of passed through the uh, communist revolution and, you know, the communist guard and the red guard and all those crazy people back then. So some of the training, you know, they, they knew the applications, and it was kind of fun to learn. They would show you, you know, some kind of walk the circle with Pakwan, how you apply it as a chin or a, th a lock or a throw and stuff as they were teaching the athletes. I mean, the athletes would, would take that and spin it and turn it into a, you know, an awesome routine. But uh, uh, they were more, you know, working on the, the form and the, the flow and the, the look as compared to the fighting and the function and the foundation. But it, it came out looking good and, uh, you know, but they did have the ability to learn from these masters and so did we. So Coach Wu opened the door for me to train with Zhao Daoyuan, who's a top uh, Pakwa teacher. He's actually worked for the secret police. And, uh, you know, some other people, Ten, Ten, uh, Li Tenjin, who's a Tai Chi master, and uh, Kang Yuan, and some other people that are pretty well known in the Beijing city for different styles. And that was fun. Now, I've heard of all these different styles, Xing, uh, Pakwa, Xing Yi, and all that. What are the differences between all these arts? I never really understood it. Um, you know, I always say that they're all parts of the whole. And, um, you know, Xing Yi in Bakwa are like go hand in hand with Tai Chi. Matter of fact, there's a saying, uh, Tai Chi is the clouds, uh, Bakwa is the, the wind, and Xing Yi is the thunder, you know. So um, they kind of work together. And Bakwa is like circle walking and small circle and grasping and locking and throwing and wrapping, kind of like Aikido or Hapkido or Jiu Jitsu or, or something like that, you know, grasp and control. And going from the outside to control somebody, you know, wrapping them up, maybe grab them from behind the neck or whatever. And the interesting thing about Pakwa is when you do these moves, it's almost like always a bone breaking, grab the arm and snap as you grab the neck and pull their, their spine back and snap, snap, snap. So I call it the bone popping style. But it's circular. Xing Yi goes straight in with power punching and strong, firm footwork and like a no surrender, no retreat attack. Kind of like you see in those uh, Donnie Yen Yip Man movies, going forward, pop, 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 pop. Xing Yi is kind of like that, but uh, a little bit different than Wing Chun. But they work together, you know. Some people like to punch straight in. They have that, that um, mindset, I'm going to just no surrender, no retreat. And then you have some people that want to get out of the way and deflect and fight like that too. But circles and lines go together, so you got to have both of them. So in, in my philosophy of teaching, you know, I think Bakwa and Xing Yi are part of the whole, just like, you know, Long Fist teaches you to kick high and use kicks like Taekwondo. It's another part of the, the formula, you know. Uh, Eagle Claw teaches you to grab and snap and pressure points and squeezing and you know Mantis teaches you to pull someone in and snap them about Ali. It's called suck and regurgitate while you're controlling and whipping and striking. I think they're all part of you know it's good to know I mean what happened was one master specialized in one thing and it became a whole style you know but uh, they all they all work together you know it's it's all functional as a whole. I mean you could be a good kicker but if you're not a good wrestler you're missing something. If you're a good you know, puncher, but you're not a good uh, arm control or specialist like that. You're still missing something. Now, so is Chinna a part of Bagua or no? Chinna is. It's part of everything. Pretty every pr pretty much every style 
has chinna on it, you know. It could be longfist, it could be nanchuan, it could be pakwa, it could be eagle claw, it could be mantis. They all have chinna techniques, yeah. So it's not a style more than what it's a series of techniques then? Yeah, yeah. Jiu-jitsu is chinna, you know. Aikido is chinna. Yeah. So it's like grabbing and locking, is that what that is? Yeah, yeah, grabbing, locking, controlling, yeah. Okay. It, cool. it could be especially twisting the joints, it could be snapping the bones, it could be sealing the breath, like choking them out, it could be you know, squeezing on their, their nerves or, or their veins or their arteries to stop the blood flow to knock them out. You know, it's kind of specializes in that stuff. All right, so the bakwa is more like circular stepping and grabbing and holding. The shin uh, yi is more like the straight, like coming in and punching and I guess kicking too? Yeah, there's kicks, kind of low kicks, not really much high kicks, but yeah, low kicks. More Okay, so more sh straight and striking. And then you have like the locking techniques, which is the chin na, is that correct? Yeah, eagle claw, praying mantis, there's a lot of locking, yeah. Okay, cool. So does, so does Bagua, and so does Tai Chi. <laughs> yeah. Now, how, yeah, do, yeah. how do Tai Chi and Bagua and Xing Yi, how do they connect? You were talking that they connect. How do they connect with, in your mind? Well, they're all considered internal styles, you know, and uh, uh, Bagua is, a, like I said, it's soft and, and fighting from the outside and circulating from the outside, and it's based on the eight directions, you know, Northeast, South, and West, or whatever you want to call it. Northwest, yeah, Southeast, South. But, uh, and that means you're probably most, more like going to the outside of the opponent. And Shingi goes on the inside of the opponent, straight forward in a straight line. And uh, Tai Chi is just kind of like a way of just like, someone that doesn't really want to fight, you're like deflecting and pushing and redirecting. Like someone comes at you like, or punches you, kind of like push them away and knock their balance out from under them. Uh, you know, there are three different strategies or, or you know, philosophies of fighting, but just they're considered internal. So internal, if you learn Tai Chi, that's part of it. And if you can learn Bakwa and Xingyi, that's the other two parts of it. You know, it's kind of like goes together like brotherhood or something, you know. Wind, thunder, and, 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 uh, wind, thunder, and <laughs> lightning. Now, I know for the most, I mean, Tai Chi, they have fighting applications, but they're more known for their forms and their breathing, correct? Yeah, yeah. Now, is yeah. Bagua the same thing in Xing Yi, or is it more technique-based versus, like, forms? Yeah. Like I said, it really depends on who the teacher is, you know. I, I see a lot of American Bagua where they do teach the applications, and then in China, they, you know, the policy has changed where they can teach more fighting in China because back in the 80s, they weren't allowed to publicly because against the communist, uh, you know, um, policy. But, um, you know, I think... Bakwa and Xingyi do touch more on application than Tai Chi does in the United States. But um, it's more offensive. Bakwa and Xingyi are more offensive, and Tai Chi is more defensive. Okay. Because yeah, Tai Chi does have self-defense, but you don't you seldom like running and punching at the guy and, you know, like, come back here. It's more like, hey, get away from me type of fighting, you know. Now, I know there's Yang style and then there's Chen style Tai Chi, correct? Yes. What's the difference between those two? Yang is a simplified version of Chen. Chen was like the original style, and it had a lot of subtleties within the, the movements and a lot of smaller moves within movements and moves within those movements. And it was kind of hard for people to learn. So one of the students of Master Chen was Master Yang, Yang Cheng Fu, and he kind of turned it into a simplified version of the same style. And it was because this, the story goes that uh, Chen, Master Chen was invited to teach the emperor, and he turned it down because he knew that if the emperor was, couldn't learn it, it was too hard that he might get his head cut off type of thing. 
So then the next in line was his student, Master Young. And Master Young took the job, but he simplified the style so the emperor could learn it, the court could learn it, and and they, you know, everybody satisfied, and then you know he wouldn't get his head lopped off. So Young became a simplified version without all the subtleties and the intricacies, intricacies, whatever that word is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he, you know, that's how, and it became more popular. Chen's the original, but Young became worldwide popular. You know, so that there's a form called the 24-step Young style, which is the most widely popular Tai Chi form. As a matter of fact, I think Tai Chi is the most popular martial arts worldwide because there's so many Chinese doing it too. Yeah. But it's over 120 million people do Tai Chi. Okay. And then the Chen style, how, is it just one form or is it is it broken down like that by numbers? Yeah, there's a whole style. There's a whole uh, system. Uh, there's probably like three main forms, but there's a lot of subforms. And then they have weaponry too. And, and, and it, even though it looks like some of the style is, when you think of Tai Chi, it's slow. Chen style is like another style of Kung Fu. They have fast forms and fast, crazy weapon forms and, you know, all kinds of variety in there because, you know, it was really just the Chen village's style of self-defense, you know, their infantry or their local militia. That's what they all did was, that was their fighting style. So it really has fast forms too. You know? Now, what do the numbers represent? They, I see that, you know, 20, Chen, uh, young, 18 or 24, I believe, mm -hmm. and then the same thing with Chen. What do those represent? Yeah, the number of uh, uh, techniques, the number of techniques within a routine can be broken down. The original routine had 108 forms. Okay. You know, some uh, if you're talking Chen, it's a little bit more than 108. But then Yang simplified it to 108, and then that was too long because it took like, you know, half an hour to do the routine. But each each routine, each technique, was a self-defense move. You know, but. You know, they strung them together just like everything in karate and, you know, all this. They became a routine. So it took, uh, like, 25 minutes to do 108 forms. So then they simplified it down and finally came down and down. It was, like, 108. It was 88. It was 64. It was uh, 36. It was 24. Now they even have 8 and 16. Okay. So it's more about the number of actual techniques. They, now, they could be done left and right side, but it's the number of actual techniques in the form. Is that it? Yes. Okay, cool. And what are the, the Chen Tai Chi form uh, names? Um, the original old form, the canon form, okay. the small frame and the large frame. Yeah, they had different names, but yeah. Okay. Canon form is like the, the, the main form of the Chen style routine. That people learn today, is that what you're saying? Well, the main one that everything came from, the original form was the, Chen, the canon. There's the old canon and the young or the new canon, but it's, it's the canon fist is what it's called. Now, I'm not a Tai Chi practitioner, um, but I saw that one Jet Li movie, Tai Chi Master, and I really enjoyed watching it, and it looked cool. What was that that he was doing in that one? He was, like, moving a circular, then he had, like, power motions in it. What was yeah. that? That is Chen. Chen? Yeah, Chen is really, really more exciting to watch. You know, Yang can be a little bit more subtle and just kind of... If you know, I teach Yang and I, I love Yang, but sometimes it's like you watch it so long, especially if you go to Yang tournament or Tai Chi tournament, it's like, oh my gosh. But Chen has little, like you said, little twists and, and wraps, and then all of a sudden explosive snaps and release of power. And that's just what it is, you know, a, a wind up and then a unwind to release the power snapping kind of skill, which gets its you know, main thing from it. It's a very powerful style. Okay, so that's the Chen. And was that a specific one, or is that, is that the canon, or is it a different one? Yeah, he was just, you know, applying bits and pieces for the movie, but, you know, it's mainly based on, the, it's all based on the canon.
Okay, cool. Now I want to go back to China and training with Coach Wu Bin. Um, what was he like as a person? I'll probably never have a chance to meet him. So what was yeah. he like? Yeah. Well, you know, he grew up in the you know '50s, '60s, and you know he went through that revolution too. But um, so he he graduated in like I believe '67, '68 from college, and you know he was pretty strict communist kind of mentality. The, the training was pretty uh, rigid, if you could say militaristic or something like that, pretty hardcore. And his attitude was the same way. He's kind of like that Bella, I forget the guy's name that used to teach the gymnastics here. Bella, Bella Caroli. Yeah, Caroli, yeah, Bell Caroli, whatever. Kind of real st stiff and staunch. You know, that's his attitude on, on the floor and off the floor. So everybody feared him, you know, but, I mean, if you took him on the side, he's a pretty nice person, you know. Like I said, he opened up the doors for me and set me up t to train with some great people. But most of the time, you know, they would, it was funny because in the gym, we'd get there early and train and, you know, we'd be doing, all the athletes would be there, but coach wouldn't be there yet. And they'd always have one athlete by the door listening or looking out for him to come up on his motorcycle. And go, he's here, he's here. Ah! All of a sudden, everybody would stress out and act like they've been training and warming up the whole time. But everybody feared coach Wu, you know. I mean, he had the power to take these athletes out of their living conditions, which weren't so good, or he could, like, send you out to, you know, back to, Tough, tough living, so everybody, you know, was kind of scared to get on the wrong side of him. But training-wise, you know, he brought up some great athletes, including Jet Li, and um, you know, he 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 was a stickler. He paid attention to details and you know, foundation and, and foundation was very important to those guys back then. It still is. Now, is he actually doing teaching, or is he more like overseeing, and he's got other people that were actually teaching and stuff mm -hmm. like that? He is actually teaching. Back then, he was the main coach. There's actually three coaches. There was uh, Coach Wu Bin. There was also Coach Lee Jun Feng, not Lee Jin Hong, but Lee Jun Feng, and another coach, Coach Cheng Hui Kun. And Coach Cheng Hui Kun was the conditioning coach. And Coach Wu Bin was the men's coach specifically, but he was also the head coach. Okay. And Coach Lee Jun Feng was the women's coach. But yeah, he was on top of it. You know, he sat there and watched and yelled from the side and corrected moves and smacked people around, had his little stopwatch, make sure everything was going how it should be. You know, and, you know, he was in charge, definitely. Now, is there a difference between like the female wushu and the men's wushu, or is it the same? <laughs> Pretty much the same. Pretty much the same. Um, back then, you know, it was just hard straight across the board. You know, it didn't matter if you were male or female, and everybody did the same foundation training and skills and strength. Um, you know, performing-wise, the girls might do some some things a little bit different from the guys. Like their specialty might be something softer, like you know, softer weapons or more elegant forms with swords or something like that. But you know, the the base of everything was always intense, basic training under the watchful eye of Coach Wu or Coach Lee. You know. Okay. Now you, I saw something in a magazine one time where you talked about like a secret training technique the Chinese use where you, you come underneath a table, and that was one of like the, the techniques that they did. What was that about? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I believe I used the table in my training. It's a way to get your students to go low because you want to get from high to low with ease. And one of the things we used was, yeah, we used like a little six-foot table, buffet folding tables, whatever you want to call them. We'd spread it out, and I'd have my students, you know, it was just a thing about going underneath the table, like bending down into a low stance and crouching and just swooping under one side of the table and coming out the other side and then repeat it and it's kind of like extended squats going laterally from side to side but you got to get your head your torso your legs everything 
underneath the table and back up to the other side. Which is pretty hard. You can understand the way it sounds, but maybe if you have time to try it, it's pretty difficult to get that low. It'll oh, no, it sounds do it difficult. consistently as a drill, you know, so. Was that something does. they did in China? Yeah, no, not with us. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I might have saw it in a movie when I was, I don't know where I came up with it, but one day we were at my, my training class, and we're always trying to come up with great training things, you know, and one day it's like, I know, you know, you guys do that really good, but I wonder if we could go lower, and I used to hold a stick and make them go under the stick, and the stick would get lower. Yeah. And I thought, hey, you could probably do this through a, under a table and make it look good, so I kind of, you know, it sounds like something out of a Jackie Chan movie, but. Yeah. You know, now, what was some of the more unique uh, ways of training that Coach Rubin had that he did with you guys? <clears throat> um, well, you know, conditioning was a big part of it, too. So conditioning-wise, you might know a routine, but, you know, if you did that routine like one section ten times and break it down into four sections, you're doing that 40 times after one section ten times, and then you got to do it again, the whole thing, or half of it, and then the whole thing, and then after you do the whole thing like you've done it like 50 times, then you got to do some four laps around the gym and then do it again two more times. You know, it's like that kind of craziness over-the-top training was like pretty intense. So he had some ingenuity or in, his, in his training skills and a lot of things like that that he would make you do to not just get to good but to just go beyond. And I'd say wear you out so much that you're just like totally worn out. But at the end, you, you know, you, hopefully you'd build back up and when the time came, you'd be ready. And it was all about um, you know, making it look good for the competition. Uh, in China, these are the professional athlete, athletes. It's, they have teams in every province. I believe there's 32 provinces or something. Each province has a professional team, just like we have basketball teams, you know, like the Phoenix Suns. Okay. So, so they, all, you know, they all have to be on their game, and they all have to be top level and professional so they can compete against each other because when the one team does distinguish itself and win you know, all the other teams, that team makes money, the province makes money. It's just like the, the NFL or the NBA or whatever NFL, you know, that it's a prestige and money-making machine for the, the government, which is interesting because they are communists, but they do sponsor that kind of stuff. So know. the government would pay the winning team? Is that how it worked? Yes, yes. The government is in charge of everything. Wushu falls under the sports association, which is in charge of the government, you know. Uh, there's the government, there's the cultural division, and there's under that there's the sports division, under that there's the wushu division, and you know, it's all funded and taken care of by the government. So these guys, if you get on the team, you know, it's like a status, and they, 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 they make the team. They can live better, eat better, and have prestige. Their family gets some kickbacks too, so everybody starts feeling the, the good part of it. So you know, ba even back then it was even better because people were pretty poor back then in China. And so to get that status was a big thing. So they didn't want to lose that status. The problem was in China, there's for every, you know, what, there's over a billion people, two billion people in China. So you got to be on your game all the time because someone's ready to take that spot. So, you know, it's pretty high competitive back then and today too, you know. So how many um, people were on a team for each province? <clears throat> well, I know the Beijing team had like 30 people. But when they'd compete, it'd be 12, which would be six guys and six girls. You know, so from the 30 reserves, they'd pick the, the, t the sharpest ones for that competition. You know. So again, you'd have to be on your game or you're going to be in the reserves on the bench. And then eventually, if you don't get, get your game up, you could be replaced. Or, you know. So I, I only hear of the Beijing Wushu team. So what are some of the other big teams in China? <clears throat> well, the Beijing was well known because they did tour the world and 
1980 and they went to so many countries. And then, of course, Jet Li came out and made the movie Shaolin Temple, and then from there it exploded. And Donnie Yen also, you know, uh, what do you want to uh, train with the Beijing team? But there's like the Shanghai team is famous, the Canton team, you know, the Jiangsu team, Sichuan, any, any province in China you name, there's a team there. You know, the Shandong team is very strong, though. The Shandong team is very strong because they've always had a good history and culture of martial arts way back in the day. And Shandong is pretty close to Beijing. It's just close to the ocean. So, and then the Hunan team, which is where the Shaolin Temple is. So there's a Hunan Wushu team. And, you know, some of them are, are monks and some of them are athletes, but they, you know, they're really good too because of the Shaolin Temple. Okay. Now, these teams, think. they draw from all over the country or only from their area? They draw from all over the country, but mostly they'll try and stay within their province. But, you know, the, the Beijing team's different. You know, they'll pick anybody they want because they got clout. It's like, oh, I want that guy in my team. And so, but what they'll have is like um, regionals, like tryouts, and all the athletes will try out. Even when they're young, they have tryouts. You try out, and if you're good enough, you get to go to the sports school and just train wushu and then, you know, have your study time for your other academics, but you're mainly an athlete if you can make the sports school tryouts. Then from there, they get farmed out or picked or recruited to the the amateur adult teams, and or from there they get picked into the training regime for professional teams, or they can go to college and join the college teams, you know, and go from there. So it's really kind of like uh, American sports where there's different levels and tiers dif depending on what the, the the athlete wants then, is that correct? That is correct. The only thing is, um, you know, it's not that way here, and it's not that as popular like that here, and, uh, you know, it's... I mean, in China, you can get a college degree, a doctorate in, in wushu, you know, and just spend your whole four, eight years of training and studying wushu in college and then go off to become a coach, write books, uh, you know, open a school or whatever they, you know, whatever you do, you know. Uh, here, it's really not like that. It's you got to push yourself and get what you get out of it, what you can, while you can and what's your goal and you're on your own type of thing. Afterwards. Know? Yeah. Now, in for the like the, the big teams like the Beijing, the Hunan, do kids go to that place or is that? They don't go there. Yeah. The Beijing team trains at a place called Shishahai. And Shishahai is a sports school. And it's like a, you know, a local school where the kids come and train and study, like I said, where they train in athlete, athletics. And then they do their studies in the afternoon with teachers for academics. But, yeah, they have their own school. And it's a, it's a, big, it's a big sports facility. They have all kinds of sports there. You know, ping pong, every sport you can think of, gymnastics, wrestling, taekwondo even. And then, you know, wushu. And then the, the, the athletes have their own special gym there. The professional team trains there, too. But it's different coaches. The team has their professional coaches, and then you have the amateur school with the kids and whoever training with their coaches. So for the professionals, it's basically it's all adults then? Yes, yes. Okay, what age do they start? You know, it's not necessarily adults, but I'd say, you know, mm, they probably have young ones, like 15. So it's all know. about skill then? Yeah, skills, yeah, definitely. Okay. I mean, even when they go compete, there might be a young, really good kid, but he's got skills, but he's not going to score as high as the adult, usually, because we can see that he still has to mature. You know? Yeah. Okay, so kids, they compete at their own, um, in their own divisions, and then as they progress and they get older, like 15, 16, 17, that's when maybe these bigger teams start looking at them. Is that it? Yes, yes, right. Yeah, like I said, the coaches will go and look for new people that they need for their team while they're young and might pick someone out and then, hey, come to my sports school and tra I'll train you until you get older and then you'll join the team type of thing, you know.
Oh, so they could actually go and train there, but just maybe not be on the team. Is that it? Right. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, cool. Yeah. Now, how is the training broken out as far as empty hand forms with weapons forms and the different types of weapons and the different forms? Um, they spend a lot of time, uh, you know, they, they'll, they'll divide up the morning hours. If they're training four hours in the morning and, then, you know, whatever they do in the evening, they might do like, you know, one hour of warming up in basics and then one hour of empty hand form and then one hour of weapon. That's three hours, and they might use the last hour to do like maybe sparring, fighting routines, or some specialty or whatever. And then, you know, they they break it up into four hours, but they spend equal amount of time unless they need to work on certain things. You know, each coach has his own way of doing it. Maybe Tuesday we're going to focus on weapons more, long weapon, or Thursday we're going to focus on a short weapon more. You know, because they an athlete in China when you compete, you have to do a, an empty hand routine, a long weapon, and a short weapon. Now. Before, you had to do an empty hand routine, a long weapon, a short weapon, an old style traditional routine, and a traditional weapon. And you have an elective to do a fighting routine with a, another team member, or you have an elective to do another long or short traditional weapon, and you have the elective to do an internal form like bakwashing and tai chi. So they could do up to eight routines that they had to do at a competition. As compared to now, they might do one or three. You know. But like they said, they take the time to every class to break that down, cut it up, dissect it, build it up, and put it back together under the watchful eye of their coach. So now, what are the long weapons and what are the short weapons? <clears throat> In modern Wushu, you have two long and two short, which is the main weapons. You have the spear and the staff as a long weapon, and you have the broadsword and the straight sword, which is a short weapon. And those are the main four weapons of modern Wushu. But if you get into traditional vi divisions, there's a barrage, a whole arsenal of weapons, too many to name, you know, that you could compete with, long and short, and two-handed. I mean, you know, doubles or whatever, you know. Now, I know you specialize in rope dart. Where does that fall under? That's like it's traditional weapon, but it's also a flexible weapon. And flexible weapon also includes like three-sectional, two-sectionals, like chucks even, um, chain whips, you know, those kind of weapons, which are pretty popular, the main four popular, and then rope darts. So, so those, yeah, are co those are considered traditional weapons? Yeah, traditional weapons, because you wouldn't see them at a modern competition. But, uh, but it, if that competition has traditional division, you might have it in there. And then if they have a lot of traditional weapons, it might be in the flexible weapons you know, division. <laughs> now, now, are the athletes, are they learning this, all the athletes from all the different places, are they doing one specific routine, or are they developing their own routines? Yeah. There's two categories. There's compulsory, just like a gymnastic competition, and then there's individuals. So it depends on the competition, but usually every athlete has his own in specific routine that they've been working on, you know, that they specialize in. And they take the time to learn, you know, because maybe they do a, a, a spear and they do a, a staff, and they decided, well, my spear sucks, and I, I need to practice staff better this time. So maybe one year they're going to specialize in staff, and the next year they're going to specialize in spear, and... They can change it until they find their best of the best, you know. But they always learn, you know, whichever weapon it is, one of those weapons of the four weapons. And empty hands, same thing. You know, they got to make sure they do it good if they're going to do that particular thing in, in the competitions and such. So they, they, they work on it until they know what they're good at, and then they work on that specific thing. So there's a standardized form that they follow? Is that what it is? And then they just add their flair to it? Is that it? Yeah. 
You know, it, it depends. If, if you're a professional level, level, they'll go to individual routines. But when you first learn it, you have to start with a standardized routine, and then you, that's your base. And once you get that down, you know, if you, look, if you feel good with it, then your coach will say, hey, we need to create this better routine for you that shows your, your best moves because that move over there doesn't look good when you do it, but that move looks really good. So let's combine the best, put it together, and make it look stellar. Okay, so they're going to learn a standardized form, and then as they progress and they get better, then they start uh, customizing it for themselves. Is that it? Yes. Is that correct. the same thing with the empty hand forms too? It is. It is, yes. And what are the empty hand forms called in Wushu? Well, like I said, I mean, if you step away from Tai Chi, Xing, Bakwa, you have the empty hand forms. And the main two are Changchun, which is the long fist style, which has the jump kicks and the high kicks and the kind of acrobatic moves. And it's kind of similar to it comes from northern China, which is close to Korea. And Korea has the Taekwondo style, which is a kicking style. So it's called northern style, which is Changchun, which means long fist, long range fighting. And that's a lot of the high jumps and kicks, the stellar style. And then you have Nanchuan which is the southern style, which comes from, you know, south of China, and it's composed of grounded style. You don't jump so much, but you have strong, rooted, strong footwork and then powerful moves, which might include tiger and crane and snake style and all those animals that you kind of see in those old movies, and they sit in their horse dance and look really classical. That's, that's southern kung fu, and that's called nanchuan. So you have changchuan, and you have nanchuan. Okay, cool. And so then, like, like, Monkey or drunken, where does that fall in? Or is that a, a different type? Yeah, that goes into traditional. So Changchuan and Nanchuan are the main two in modern Wushu. Okay. But if that tournament allows tra traditional forms also, that would be a third division. And that's where all those other styles, monkey, drunken, dog, you know, crane, tiger, you know, all those other styles come in into the traditional events. Okay. And and the 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 spear and staff, do they have actual, like, specific names for their their standardized forms or is it just or no 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 that's a generic name it's just called compulsory compulsory spear compulsory staff okay and same mm -hmm. thing for the broadsword and straight sword yeah compulsory broadsword compulsory straight sword compulsory long fist compulsory nanchuan okay and then when you get over that then it's your own routine and they really don't have names for their own routines it's just like next up master jelly Rita performing straight sword or something you know okay now are there certain like things they're looking for from, let's say, the empty hand forms or the sword forms or the staff forms that sets the techniques or the, the, the practitioner apart? Yes. Yes, because it falls back on the basics. So with spear, you might have, you know, block, like block in, block out, and thrust. And how do you do that block? Is your shoulder relaxed? Are you using your waist properly? Are you grounded? You know, and then, then you embellish on that, the stepping forward and jumping and spinning and turning and elaborate acrobatic whatever moves and all that but they mainly look at the foundation moves of basic block block stab or chop or slice or poke and you have to have those basic skills correct and those are where the standardized compulsory forms teach you that so everybody's on the same level and then they add their spicy moves or their best skill or their personal best moves you know on top of that now i i in wushu i see a lot of very deep stances and you know very the, the practitioner are very flexible. So is that a part of what they're looking for? Deep yeah. stances and flexibility? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes you stand out. If you have, you know, it's just like every other performing art, you know, you see someone that kicks and it's kind of stiff and you see someone that kicks and it's like super high and relaxed and easy. That that finesse in your movement, yeah, it gives you a better edge. But again, and they've got to have the foundation. 
because there's a lot of people that can fly, but they can't walk. So, you know, in a matter of fact, a lot of Americans, when they first started doing Wushu, they wanted to do all the crazy flying, and then they didn't have the endurance because they didn't have the basic foundation, so they wanted to fly before they could walk. And you get a lot of injuries, and you're not as good as you thought you were, and then you compete against the Chinese, like, wait, well, how come I'm not? <laughs> but, yeah, they, they you know, they, um, they do have pick if you have those certain standout things. That's how they are. That's what the coach will do when he's looking at these young guys. Well, this guy's got good stances or good flexibility. By the time he gets 17, 18, I can make him into a champion. So they already pick that out when you first started training in China. They want you to do that. You know? So the coaches have people. an idea of what they're looking for in athletes. Is, yeah. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, you can tell. If you see a group of kids and like one protege is just like, wow, that kid's crazy over there. Look how good he is. And then he stands out from the other ones. That's, Of course, you're going to excel. They're looking for people like that. Now, I mean, being from America, I mean, you don't have all this deep uh, um, people to draw from, I guess. is I'm, I'm not drawing the right word. So when you have students come in, are you able to spot maybe a possible future champion that could do well in Wushu based on certain things that they're doing? Yeah, I think so. I've, I've picked out a few that were pretty good. And yeah, I've taken a couple to national championships and they've kind of progressed really well. But that's a different thing because you got to take your time to invest in that one athlete. And do you have that time? If you have a business, are you going to spend time with one, one guy or are you going to spend the time with the whole class and the whole school? Yeah. So when you do that, you kind of you got to decide, well, am I worried about my whole class of 50 people or this one guy winning a championship? So it's kind of hard to do that, you know. But I have done it, and, you know, I, I think it's great. But, you know, at the same time, you know, I've lost some students, and <laughs> you know, because yeah. I'm focusing on this one athlete or whatever. It's different in America versus China because they got a farm system of development, and yes. those coaches are being trained to teach high-level athletes then. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, it is true. You know, back in China, actually, back then, they even one of the things would they do when they pick these guys? Well, that guy looks pretty good. Let me talk to him. They interview him. They would do strange things like compare your neck size to your calf muscles, and if they were in, in balance symmetrical, you have, you had an edge. They look at your fingers, the base of your fingers at the bottom of the tarsal metatarsal, like the third metatarsal. They'd want to see that because if they're fat down there, more or less you were going to be a fatter kid when you got older. So they didn't want fatter kids. They wanted you know people that were going to have thin bodies. You know they'd they'd usually pick someone who's not too tall, because if you're more a little bit more compact, you have more quickness as compared to someone who's long and a little bit slower and lanky, you know. So they'd pick, they had their way of picking them back then, and that was some of the things they'd look for, fingers and calf muscles, neck muscles. <laughs> really? Yeah. Now, yeah. what was some of your fondest memories of training with Coach Wu Ben? Um, well, the first day was great because he said, hey, this is Kenny, and teach him whatever he wants to know. So I was like, all right. You were in heaven, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. But, I mean, like, training it was, was always great. You know, and uh, just his father type of attitude, you know, he would come down on you or he'd be real, he was never really nurturing, but I mean, he was really authoritative and, and you know, he'd correct you on the spot. He always liked to hit me for some reason, but he wouldn't hit me hard. He'd be like a, you know, like a little punch, but he still does it to this day. You know, he's like, Kenny, huh? you could have done better or whatever. And he just laughs about it and stuff. But he always did it out of kindness. But when he'd hit those guys, he did it out of meanness, you know, because they were his personal you know, people that lived at the school with him, so he could really took over their lives. But uh, it was fun because sometimes we'd, like, go out. Today we're not going to practice. We're going to take the train and go cook, demonstrate out for this farm commune. And, you know, or this week we're all going to the tournament on the train. And that was always fun. We'd get the train ride to go somewhere, you know. And that was kind of a bonding moment. 
And uh, the one time we all got in a, a he goes, we're not going to train today. We're going to go somewhere. But no one told us what we were doing. And we all got in a van. And then <clears throat> in the van were all these other masters, like I was telling you about, that were there that day. And then uh, there was like 30 of us all. We went to this van. And we took a van to this theater. And we went to this theater. And he goes, come on, we're going to watch this movie. So we all sat down and watched this movie. And then it turned out to be a movie called Shaolin Temple. And that's the, the movie that made Jet Li world, you know, famously known. And it was brand new. No one had saw it. And they took us to the theater to watch it. And I turned and looked at these masters. And it's like, hey, these are the guys in the movie. <laughs> that's the guy with the sword. And that's the mantis. It's like, we were all here for this grand opening private screening of Shell and Temple with the team. And it's like, all these guys. I wish I had a camera back then. You know, I wasn't. It's not like you had your cell phone. You take pictures back then yeah. and stuff. So I missed a lot of opportunities. But it's up here, you know, and that was one of my fond memories, you know. Now, why do you call him Coach Wubin versus Sifu or Master or anything yeah. like that? Yeah. Well, you know, back then, compared to now, you weren't allowed to call Sifu because that was demeaning to you because it means you're bowing down to somebody. And in China, there was no classes, you know, and except the government would control the people. But the people weren't allowed to do that because it, it was kind of against the communist, uh, you know, doctrine, I guess you would say. So it was just either coach or teacher, you know, so he was a coach to me back then, and everybody called him Coach Wu, Coach Wu, Coach Wu, you know, now he goes by, he can call him whatever, you can call him teacher, you can call him Sifu, because kind of they softened up on that, but it was un not allowed to say Sifu in China back then, you know, so he was Jiao Lian, which means coach. To me, I still call him, I still call him Jiao Lian, but I call him Sifu, I call him Sifu teacher now because he's above, he's risen to the top of the crop, and you know, so out of respect, I call him Sifu Jalian. Now, would have so, would have something have happened if you would have called him like Sifu or a master? Not to me, but if there was some some communist people who were always there around watching things, and make sure everything's in order. Yeah. If they heard it, yeah, he could be reprimanded. He could be docked some pay. He could be made to quarantine in his house or whatever you want to say, restricted to his house for a week or so. Yeah. They would come down on for anything, sir. But and in China, it was like everybody's watching each other. Like, hmm, this guy did the wrong thing. I'm going to turn him in. You know? Really? Yeah. You you couldn't do anything. So he couldn't. You know, even if we were too friendly to him, he'd have to step back because this is not. You know, we're not allowed to have friends in China with more foreign Americans. Is no, it's no no right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now I, I want to wrap it up. But what was like something that was very unique about that was happening because you during that time in communist china that would happen that maybe you don't see often now or maybe some people have never even seen before in their life you know it was like a place frozen in time back then it was the 80s for us but it was like the 50s in china the buildings the people you know there was 10 everybody rode a bicycle everybody wore either blue or gray or khaki green and there was no colors, there was nothing because it was pretty dictatorship communist still back then, like Chin, General uh, Chairman Mao. And um, just, just to see the city. But when you get into the city, there was still the culture. And it was kind of cool. We could walk around and see street performers because, you know, there wasn't much going on in China. They didn't have TV. Well, they did have TV, but it was like three hours a day. And then most of it was communist doctrine, you know, and then maybe one movie of, from Hong Kong. And, you know, and then it was over like at eight o'clock. There's no TV. But on the streets, just the people, you know, even though they were kind of like coming out of their communist depression and not really opened up to the world as much yet, they had a lot of culture. We could come across street performers that were amazing. I saw this lady and her daughter. They looked kind of like street performers like you would see here. And, and she had a daughter that was like a contortion girl. And 
she would she she said, "Hey, you got any change?" You know, and I go, "Yeah, here's a little penny or whatever." She goes, "Here, throw it," and she you throw it on the ground, and the girl would after she showed you a whole routine of tremendous flexibility, she would like bend backwards and slowly go down with her mouth and bite the change and pick it up and then give it back to you. And she was just like a you know seven year old girl, and that was just one thing out of the many things she did, but that was impressive. And then the lady herself, she took like a a china plate and she smashed it on the ground and broke it. And then she said, pick a piece, any piece, you know, on the ground. So I didn't know what she was talking about, but I picked up a little pointed shard piece, and she took it in her hand. And it was pretty hardcore if you ever tried to s touch some, some china, besides being sharp. And she just, like, did her little thing, and she'd go, and squeeze, and she kept doing it. And, you know, after about a minute, she turned the whole chunk of Chinese sliver into powder with her fingers. And then that was it. And then they'd pass her on the hat, and you'd, that was how they made their money for lunch or dinner, you know. And then they'd walk away and do the next thing. Things like that, you know. Those, that was really impressive. Storytellers on the street, you know, vendors and selling weird things. All that stuff was always great. Cool. I think we've had a great conversation. Now, uh, just last thing, what's your favorite uh, kung fu movie that you like? <laughs> well, I think I'd said Master of the Flying Guillotine is always great because uh, I, I created a real flying guillotine. I'll have to show it to you someday. But, you know, Bruce Lee's the man. He's, he tops my list. And, you know, anything out of the, the 70s, 80s and those classical movies, but... You know, I'm a, I, I've trained with uh, and worked with Donnie Yen, and we've worked with director Yen Wu-Ping, who's pretty famous for some of his movies. So yeah. any Yen Wu-Ping movie is, is my, you know, something good, too. But like I always say, 36 Chambers and Master of the Flying Guillotine are pretty cool. All right, cool. Well, <laughs> Sifu Kenny Perez, I really appreciate it. I'm going to put all your information in the, in the notes for the podcast, so if anybody wants to reach out to you, they can reach out to you. I know that you're really big into uh, Tai Chi now, so if they want to learn Tai Chi or even Wushu, they can yeah. reach out to you. Sure, sure. You know, we were, I, you know, I do workshops here and there. I even Zoom them out too. So if they're interested, they can contact me. I'll give you the information. I'm sure you have it. Other than that, you know, that's a pleasure talking to you and your listeners. And it's always fun. I wish you guys success. This is great. Uh, MartialArtsJunkie.com is a great thing. So I, I wish you success in the future with all that. Thank you very much, sir. Have a great day. All right, you take care. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. In our next episode, we speak with Sensei Derek Morris, a sixth on black belt in Kamishin Ryu Jiu-Jitsu and Kokodo Jiu-Jitsu. He's also a fifth on black belt in Toyama Ryu Batodo. Thanks for joining the Martial Arts Junkies podcast today. Make sure you like, follow, subscribe. We're on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Martial Arts Junkies and at MartialArtsJunkies.com. Hit us up in the comments. Let us know what you think.